All right. Thank you, Brother Gary, for that song. We had a little bit of discussion about that song before uh, he decided to sing that. I, I, I kind of kid him a little bit about a little Peter, Paul, and Mary theme going on there. But he's an old hippie, I think, so that's all right. Good song. Thank you very much. Excellent job. Uh, good singing tonight. I, I enjoyed this. It's, it's good to do something a little bit different every now and then. Nothing wrong with that at all. Okay, let's open our Bibles, if you would, please, to the book of Joshua, chapter 5. We're back in Joshua now. It seems like a long time to me since the last time we had a message in Joshua, but we're going to come back and talk a little bit more tonight about keys to spiritual preparation. In 1991, after Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, the United States and 34 other nations began a massive buildup of troops, and we began a campaign against Iraq called Operation Desert Storm. There were months of planning and preparation that went into this to make uh, the invasion uh, of Kuwait and Iraq one of the swiftest military victories, decisive victories that the United States has ever had in a time of war. And the planning for that was an all-important part of the process. You remember uh, Storm and Norman Schwarzkopf was considered almost to be a military genius after uh, he pulled off this invasion of, Kuwait, of Iraq. Well, the key to that whole thing then was, was preparation. Sometimes when we think about Israel coming to the promised land, we look at it like they came to the border, they arrived there, they were ready to go into Canaan. God said to Israel, okay, there it is, go get it. They went across the river and then... Everything was just fine, and they, the walls of Jericho fell down, and they were ready to, to take the land of Canaan. But that's not really what happened. There was some spiritual preparation that had to take place, and the key to the victory at Jericho was this preparation. Now, it wasn't the massive troop buildup of the, of the Israelites, and it wasn't gathering war machinery and all of that to go against Jericho, but what the children of Israel had to do, they had to stop and prepare themselves before God would allow them to take the land. Well, the victory would only be theirs when they had renewed their commitment to the Lord their God. Next week, we're going to talk a, a little bit more about uh, the, the battle itself and how they accomplished this. But this week, I just want to talk to you about the spiritual preparation. Let's stand, if you would, please, as we read from God's Word tonight. Joshua chapter 5, we're going to start with verse number 1. We'll read down to verse number 7. And it came to pass, when all the kings of the Amorites, which were on the side of Jordan westward, and all the kings of the Canaanites, which were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we were passed over, that their heart melted. Neither was their spirit in them any more because of the children of Israel. At that time, the Lord said unto Joshua, Make thee sharp knives and circumcise again the children of Israel the second time. Joshua made him sharp knives and circumcised the children of Israel at the hill of the foreskins. And this is the cause why Joshua did circumcise all the people that came out of Egypt that were males, even all the men of war died in the wilderness by the way after they came out of Egypt. Now all the people that came out were circumcised, but all the people that were born in the wilderness by the way as they came forth out of Egypt, them they had not circumcised. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness till all the people that were men of war which came out of Egypt were consumed 
because they obeyed not the voice of the Lord, unto whom the Lord sware that he would not show them the land which the Lord sware unto their fathers that he would give us, a land that floweth with milk and honey. And their children whom he raised up in their stead, them Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised, because they had not circumcised them by the way. Heavenly Fathers, we come to you tonight. I just ask you, Lord, you'd help us to learn something from your word tonight. Show us uh, how we can be spiritually prepared in our Christian lives to do what you want us to do to live a victorious Christian life. Just help us tonight in this message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's been quite a while now, but you may remember that we talked about verse number one of this chapter in the last message that I preached. While Israel was wandering around in the wilderness for those 40 years, scared to death to go into the land of Canaan. At the same time that they were afraid, the Canaanites were actually in the land, and they were afraid that Israel was going to come into the land and to take it. Uh, They knew what had happened when Israel came out of Egypt. They heard about all of that. They heard about how uh, the Israelites had killed the kings of Moab and Ammon. And this fear of these Canaanites was only intensified when Israel finally did show up at the border of Canaan. And they watched the people of Israel as they began to uh, gather themselves together and to form their army and get ready to march. Their spies watched as the uh, priests of Israel took the Ark of the Covenant. They went before the people. They stepped into the waters of Jordan. And then when they stepped in, the Bible tells us that the waters parted and all of the children of Israel went across on dry ground. I think it was at that time that these people in Canaan realized that the man-made fortifications that they had there, these would not stand against the children of Israel and against their God. And so the children or the people of Jericho, they were waiting behind these city walls. They knew that the inevitable was coming But they expected that the onslaught would come very quickly. They saw Israel cross over the Jordan, and they expected that it's not going to be very long before those Israelites are going to be here knocking on our door, and we're going to have to fight them. But there was something that they noticed when Israel got across the river. Instead of quickly moving forward to take the city of Jericho, all of Israel stopped. Israel did not take advantage of the mass hysteria that was going on in Jericho. Instead, they stopped because spiritual preparation had not yet been made. Now, the army, I think, was probably physically ready to go in. They were pumped up. They were ready to fight. But God said, you have to stop because you are not prepared to go in to take the land. Your hearts have to be right with me. And so God gave them some things that they needed to do to be properly, spiritually prepared to go in and take the land. Now, I want us to notice some things tonight that are real keys to spiritual preparation. Israel must do these things, and we're going to find out that we have to do these things as well. So let's talk about this spiritual preparation. Key number one is that you must circumcise your heart. You must circumcise your heart. In the Old Testament, there's a great deal of emphasis that's placed upon the rite of circumcision. And we might not clearly understand that today and understand why God would have them do this. But this was a symbolic act. And God said that this must be imposed upon all the male children of Israel. And this would be God's sign that they were his covenant people. 
Circumcision was given to Abraham hundreds of years before this. And God said, Abraham, this will be the sign and the seal of the covenant that I've made with you. I want you to turn your Bibles, if you would, please, back to Genesis chapter 17. We're going to read a few verses here about when God gave Abraham the right of circumcision. Uh, Genesis chapter 17, we're going to start reading at verse number 9. And God said unto Abraham... Thou shalt keep my covenant, therefore, thou and thy seed after thee in their generations. This is my covenant, which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man-child among you shall be circumcised. And ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant betwixt me and you. And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you, every man-child in your generations, he that is born in the house, or bought with money of any stranger, which is not of thy seed. He that is born in thy house, and he that is bought with thy money, must needs be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised man-child, whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, That soul shall be cut off from his people. He hath broken my covenant. One thing that we need to understand about circumcision is that this was never given to the Jews as a means by which they could be saved. This was a symbol of this relationship that they had with Jehovah God. This said that they are God's chosen people. They enjoyed a favorite nation status among all the nations of the world. It said that their bodies belonged to God, their hearts belonged to God. It said that they would maintain purity as a nation. They would not mix and mingle with the Gentile people. They would not intermarry with them. They would not have them a part of their society. And that they would continue to worship the one true God. But there was something that happened to Israel as they were wandering in the wilderness... During all of that time, the 40 years that they were there, they had not circumcised their children. Now, you can do a lot of reading on this among different commentators, and you'll find out that there's a lot of division about why exactly the people had not circumcised their children as God had commanded. But I think the best explanation that we could give for this is that at this particular time, God was denying them as a form of punishment. He was denying them this covenant right, this sign and seal that they were actually his people. And the reason that God did this was because when they came to Kadesh Barnea, that's when they came right up to the, to the borders of, of Canaan, right after they had left Egypt, Moses sent those 12 spies over to spy out the land to see if they could take the land. Ten spies came back with this terrible, dismal report that said, we cannot take this land. And Moses and the people listened to that advice and they refused to enter in. And so God was angry about this. And so God said that everyone who is among the children of Israel from 20 years old and upward, they will not be allowed to enter into Canaan. So all of those people that were 20 years old and up from that, they all died in the wilderness. So for those 40 years that they're wandering in the wilderness, none of the children of Israel were circumcised. But here we find them ready to cross. They've crossed the river. They're ready to, to go and attack Jericho. But at this point, they, they are an uncircumcised nation. And in this respect, they weren't any different than the inhabitants of Canaan. And so God says, now is the time for you to renew this commitment. I want you to circumcise every male before I'll allow you to enter, to land, enter the land. 
And so the commitment to Jehovah God had to be renewed because these people must once again be identified as the covenant chosen select people of God. Well, the remarkable thing about this is, is the timing that they did this. Almost any military strategist strategist would have said, what you need to do is strike while the iron is hot. Go and attack Jericho while you have the momentum. You've crossed Jordan. The people are pumped up. You're ready to go. So now go and fight against them. And for sure, there is no commander who had put his army with its back against the mighty Jordan River. They can't go back this way. And in front of them is this formidable foe of Jericho. No commander is going to put himself between, in that position between these two places and then totally disable every single man who's in the army. Now, I don't think that I have to go into detail about this, but... Every man that was circumcised for several days, they couldn't pick up a spear, they couldn't get a sword, they couldn't take up their shields, they couldn't fight. It was impossible for them to do that. Well, in fact, this very kind of debilitating uh, uh, act had been used as a deception tactic many years before by the sons of Jacob. I don't have time to go into the whole story right now, but there was a man by the name of Shechem who was from the city of Shechem, And he uh, sexually assaulted one of Jacob's daughters, Dinah, who was the daughter of Jacob by Leah. Uh, He sexually assaulted her. But then this man Shechem wanted to marry Dinah. And so uh, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, said that, well, here's what we'll do. We'll allow you to marry her. And then we will also intermarry with your people if you'll just have all of the men of your city circumcised. And so they thought, well, that's a pretty good deal. We'll do that. And so they did. And while the men, after the men had been circumcised, Simeon and Levi went into the city when they couldn't defend themselves, and they killed all the men of the city. Well, this is exactly what could have happened to Israel. Here they are. It's no time to circumcise because they're simply too close to the enemy. But Joshua didn't doubt what God said. God said, circumcise, and so that's what he did. Well, most likely, the Canaanites were were still very much afraid of what they'd seen, the the children of Israel crossing the Jordan River. And so they were afraid to attack. And God used that little bit of time there uh, for, for Joshua to have the men circumcised and to renew this commitment to God. Well, we look at this and, and we think, well, what is this all about? Well, really, for us, this is God saying that I am not going to bless you until you're right with me. I'm not going to give you the victory until you've decided that you're going to renew your commitment that I am your God and you are my people. Now, I want us to notice for just a moment the New Testament connection with this. Of course, we do understand that the New Testament very often explains what happens in the Old Testament. And this is the case with the rite of circumcision. God gave circumcision to teach us a lesson. Now, I want you to turn to the book of Romans now, chapter 2, for just a moment. And here in Romans chapter 2, Paul is discussing the salvation of Gentiles. And he's telling the people that the real connection with God is not this outward act of circumcision, but the real thing here is whether a person's heart is right with God. So we look at Romans chapter 2, verse number 28. Here Paul writes, For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, Neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter. Whose praise is not of men but of God. 
So what Paul says there is what matters the most is your heart. And so a Jew, a real Jew, was one who followed God with his heart. And the fact that his heart was right was the very thing that led him to acts of obedience, doing everything that God commands. Well, the Jews in the New Testament period, they never should have been confused about this because way back many years before, God had explained that this rite of circumcision was really a symbol. It's just an act to show something else. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, God says, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no more stiff-necked. He said in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, And the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul that thou mayest live. But by the New Testament times, the the Jews had so perverted this that there were literally hundreds of laws that they had put in place uh, alongside the act of circumcision. And they kept all of these outward rites and they thought that that was the way that they would become acceptable with God. Well, the Jews made that mistake and there are a lot of people among nominal Christianity today who are making the very same mistake that the Jews made. The largest body of quote-unquote Christians today, is the Roman Catholic Church. And what the Roman Catholic Church has, it, it is filled with acts of circumcision. And by that I mean they have all of these rites and all of these things that people have to keep, and they tell you to do all of these things, and this is what will make you righteous. Well, of course, I'm not talking about literal circumcision. They don't do that. But the Roman Catholic Church heaps all of these kind, different kinds of commands upon people. And they say, if you keep all of these things, then God will enable you someday, hopefully, if you do all of this, that you'll be able to get out of purgatory. And so they tell the people that you have to have membership in the church. They say that you have to go through the rite of baptism. There must be confirmation. There's the whole list of sacraments. And they say, when all of these things are kept, when all of these things are right, then maybe... Just maybe, you'll be right with God. And I mention baptism here because this is probably something that that hits closer to home than any of the other things that they do. But all the way from the Catholic Church to the Lutherans to the Church of Christ, even to the Mormons, they believe that baptism is essential for salvation. Maybe you didn't know this, but right now, the Mormons in Utah, 24 hours a day, are baptizing for the dead. They have people that go into the water and they baptize by proxy for people that have died in hopes that they'll be able to get them into heaven. But the thing is, baptism is no more of a way to get to heaven than circumcision is. Because the Bible is teaching us that the crux of the matter is the person's heart. The question is, is your heart right with God? Have you been regenerated? Have you been born again? That's what the Bible always teaches us as the way that we'll get into heaven. So God demanded circumcision here because he wanted his people to have this outward sign, this sign that said that they were willing to dedicate themselves to him. So he said, you must be identified as my people. Well, I think that God is telling us the same thing today. I want to show you here the personal application of this, and it comes in the form of a question. The personal application is, are you identified as a follower of Jesus? Now, maybe as people look at your life, they really can't tell if you're a follower of Jesus. You go to the same places that the world goes. You have all the same habits that the world has. Your speech is the same. You, maybe you drink, you smoke, or you dress like the world. 
Is there really a way that the world can tell that there is a difference between you and them? Of course, I'm not saying that if you refrain from all of these things that I've just mentioned, that that will get you into heaven. But I am saying that it sure does alter the perception of people about whether you are a child of God. So none of these things get us into heaven. And we really don't need to make rules concerning all of these things. Because when a person whose heart is truly right with God, they understand these things and they begin to follow the Lord and they're conscious of these very things. So it's very important for you as a Christian to identify yourself as God's follower, as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the circumcision of the flesh is a symbol of the circumcision of the heart. And it doesn't matter how many different things that you do outwardly with your body. I mean, you may try all different kinds of things, keep everybody's rules, dress properly, do everything that you're supposed to do, but those things will never make a difference in your life until your heart is right with God. Your heart is what leads you into the proper obedience of the Lord. Now, what God does here is he changes your heart first, and then, of course, that's the operation of God, but he changes your heart first, and then you respond to what God has done in your heart through the holy fruits of faith and regener- or fa- repentance and faith. Regeneration that you've been born again is expressed in these fruits of repentance and faith. And so when you have been regenerated and you put faith in Christ, when you have repented of all of your sins, now you're ready to be identified with Jesus. Well, let's go back to this thought of baptism once again. Baptism is not a replacement for circumcision. And there are churches, many of the Protestant churches teach this, that baptism is actually the replacement for circumcision in the Old Testament. Well, it's not a replacement, but there is something that it is that's similar, and that is that our baptism is identification with the Lord Jesus Christ. So we identify with Jesus in baptism. Taught about this many times, we'll continue to say it, that in baptism we declare that we have put our faith in Christ. Paul said, as many as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. But if you're baptized and your heart is not right with God, then it means no more than a Jew who was circumcised who didn't really know who the true God was. So key number one in spiritual preparation and for spiritual victory is that you must circumcise your heart by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Key number two is that you must realize the power of the blood. Why was it so important for Israel to be circumcised? Well, we've already talked about uh, identification. That was necessary. It showed that they were God's covenant people. But there was also a very, another very important reason. I want you to look at Joshua 5, verse number 10. It says, And the children of Israel encamped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at even in the plains of Jericho. A prerequisite for celebrating Passover was circumcision. We know that the Passover was given to Israel before they ever left Egypt. And God said that there is no person in Israel who can celebrate the Passover unless they've been circumcised. Well, evidently, circumcision had also been neglected during this time that Israel was in bondage to the Egyptians. Because God told Moses, he said, before you can take the Passover supper, all of the children, all of the men need to be circumcised. And that's why here we find in Joshua chapter 5, verse number 2, that God says, circumcise again the children of Israel the second time. 
Well, that doesn't mean that all of the men are going to be circumcised one more time. It doesn't mean that. But it means that for the second time in Israel's history, the rite of circumcision must be renewed. So what this means is that all of the time that Israel was out there wandering in the wilderness, not only were they not circumcised, but because they're not circumcised, they also had not celebrated the Passover. So we don't read anything in that 40 years of wilderness wanderings, anything about the children of Israel going through and, and, and practicing the Passover. So they have to go back now, and they have to remember the Passover. And what's that all about? Well, the Passover shows us the power of the blood. When the families of Israel put that blood on their doorposts and the lintel of their houses, that said that they believed that this blood had the power to cause the death angel to pass over their houses. And, of course, that's what happened. When the death angel came, he saw the blood, and that blood was put there for the power of protection. Well, whose blood was this? Well, we know that it was symbolic of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We find that out in the New Testament because Paul said, as Christ, even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. So that points to the fact that that picture there in the Passover is the blood of Jesus Christ that will protect us. So it's not the weapons of warfare that the children of Israel had. It's not because they're a great people and they're skilled at military exercises. Those things would never be enough for them to, uh, to overtake the city of Jericho. What they need is the protection of the blood. And so they have this blood. They have this symbol. They must go through the Passover again. And that would be saying that in the blood of Jesus, we have protection and we have conquering power. Now, isn't it amazing that there are churches today that say little to nothing about the blood of Jesus Christ? There are churches today that don't preach about the blood. They've abandoned preaching about the cross. And that's because they, they're just like Paul said, that they're, the cross is an offense to them. They don't like preaching about the cross. It's foolishness, just as we preached this morning. Hazel and Claude told me about a church that they visited here, right here in our area, where God was not mentioned... The Bible was not used. Christ was not named. And so I don't think it's any stretch to figure out that they probably didn't mention anything about the blood either. But here's something that we know. There is no person that will ever get into heaven without the blood of Jesus. Now, maybe you don't understand all about that. And I don't think any of us really understand it all. Because there, I just simply don't know. How does God take the blood of Jesus and how does he wash my sins away through the blood? I really don't understand it all. But I, but I know this. I'm just old-fashioned enough to believe it. I'm old-fashioned enough to preach from an old-fashioned Bible. And I, I'm just old-fashioned enough to talk about an old-fashioned Savior who I believe is still washing sins away in an old-fashioned way. And we'll continue to preach that because there is nothing else that will work. The Apostle Peter said, We are not redeemed with corruptible things, but by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so when these people celebrated the Passover, they said, Well, just as God had delivered us out of Egypt, just as he protected us there, he will also protect us as we go against Jericho. And it's the power of the blood that will enable us to take the land of Canaan. So victory in Jericho was assured. And they expected this victory because they trusted in the symbolism of the blood of the Lamb. Well, here's the thought for you and your personal application on this point. Do you expect victory in Jesus? 
Do you expect victory in Jesus? I see so many Christians that they walk around with tears in their eyes. They walk around with this lower lip, dragging the ground and stepping on that lower lip. And they're frantic all the time and they're worrying, what am I going to do? What about this? And, and how, how am I going to make it in the world? And, and, and how, what about my health? What am I going to do about that? How am I going to overcome my problems? And they're nervous and carrying on all the time. Well, the question is, what about the power of the blood? Does God have power or doesn't he? And maybe you're so fretful and you're so frantic about things because you, you're, you failed to celebrate Passover. Now, I don't mean that in a literal sense, of course, but you failed to celebrate Passover. You don't have victory because you somehow think that you're going to conquer this Jericho. You're going to win this battle by your wit and your abilities. And it can't happen. It'll never work. Remember what Jesus said in the Gospel of John. He said, without me, ye can do nothing. When people forget the Christ of the church, and they forget the Christ of the individual, then they're doomed to failure. So how do you conquer the devil, and how do you overcome it? How how, how do you do this? Well, listen to what John wrote in Revelation. Revelation 12, verse 11 says, And they overcame him by the blood of of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. That was first. But the second thing it says, and by the word of their testimony. I wonder what that word of testimony was. I seem to think, I really do believe that the word of their testimony was, Jesus saves. Jesus saves. And had these Israelites known the outcome of all these types and symbols that they were doing with the Passover, if they'd known all about this and they could see in the future, I know this, I am sure of it, that as they marched around the walls of Jericho and they saw those walls fall, when God said, blow the trumpets that I want you to shout, I have no doubt in my mind that the thing that they would have shouted was, Jesus saves! Jesus saves! And they would have said that because they knew that they were being protected by the power of his blood. So here's what we need to do. All of these thumb-sucking Christians out there today, we need to stop all of our crying. The world may not know how to solve their problems. And the world may have to have a psychiatrist to tell them to go to the bathroom in the morning. But we don't have to have that. We have God, and we ought to expect the victory in Jesus. William Carey, the, the great... Uh, Baptist Doctrines of Grace preaching missionary to India said, expect great things, attempt great things. Do you expect victory in Jesus? And if you're not expecting to win the victory, then as a Christian, you're going to be doomed to sit on the other side of Jordan for the rest of your Christian life, and you'll sit there and you'll wonder, how am I going to possess the land of milk and honey? You have to put your trust in Christ and expect him to bring you the victory. So here's what we do. Circumcise the foreskins of your heart and realize the power of Christ's blood. Now, finally, key number three in uh, in spiritual preparation, you must recognize the authority of the commander. There was a very remarkable thing that happened to Joshua in the end of this chapter. Uh, He went out, and I suppose that he was going out to survey the city of Jericho, perhaps to look it over one more time. And to mull this over, to think about it and and figure out, and probably in his own mind, to start to formulate a battle plan. How are we going to take this city? 
And I have no doubt that as Joshua was there, that he must have began to pray because he knew enough about victory and about how the way that God works that you don't approach anything without going to the Lord in prayer. God would give him the answer to how that he would conquer Jericho. So while he's out there, and I do believe that he was praying, Joshua had a personal encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to look at Joshua chapter 5, verse number 13. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there stood a man over against him with a sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went unto him and said unto him, Art thou for us or for our adversaries? And he said, Nay, but as captain of the host of the Lord am I now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship and said unto him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, Loose thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place whereon thou standest is holy. And Joshua did so. Who was this that Joshua saw? Well, we notice here first that Joshua was not timid. He's a soldier of the living God. And when he saw something out there that looked menacing and threatening, he decided that he needed to go check this out. And so he boldly asked this person that he saw, are you for us or are you against us? If you're for us, great, come, we can use you, you can fight with us. But if you're against us, you better be ready to get your head cut off. Joshua wasn't afraid. Now, from the question that that Joshua asked and the way that he asked, I believe that he thought that this was an adversary. And so he was ready to fight. But the man spoke back to him. He said, nay, no, no. He says, I'm the captain of the host of the Lord. Well, who is he? Some people say, well, this was Michael, the archangel, one of the angels. Maybe this was Gabriel or, or some of the other angels. And this is who appeared to Joshua. But he said, I am captain of the Lord of hosts. Last week, you may remember, we we sang Martin Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. There's a line in that hymn that says, Lord, Sabaoth his name from age to age the same. Sabaoth is the same Hebrew word that's translated here as host. The Lord of hosts, the Lord Sabaoth. Well, what I think this is, is the commander of the mighty angelic army of the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember that story about Elisha when the uh, king of Syria was fighting against Israel? And he was very upset because somehow the Israelites kept finding out all of his battle plans. Every step that he took, I mean, the Israelites were right there to counteract him. And so he thought, well, there must be a mole among my servants, and I've got to find out who this is. But what it really was, it was God speaking to Elisha and telling him every move the king of Syria was going to make. Well, so the king of Syria thought, well, what I have to do, I have got to go get this prophet Elisha and I've got to kill him. So he took off with his army and he surrounded the house of Elisha. And when Elisha's servant stepped outside the door and he saw this whole army of Syrians out there with their chariots and all their horses and all these fellows out there ready to fight, he went into a panic. He was scared to death. And so he went in and he told Elisha, they're out there, they're coming after us. Well, I want you to read what happened. Second Kings, I want you to hear what happened. Second Kings chapter 6, verse 15. And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, an host compassed the city, both with horses and chariots. And his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? And he answered, Fear not, 
For they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. So here it is, the army of the Lord's host. And this army that was out there was unseen until God opened the eyes of this servant. So he saw these thousands of angels are out there, and they're ready for the defense. I think this is the very same thing that Joshua was in for. The captain of the Lord of hosts were there, and these hosts are the angelic armies. The chariots of fire are there, and they're the ones who knocked down the walls of Jericho. And folks, let me tell you, that that very same angelic army and the chariots of fire are surrounding the people of God today. The thing about it is, we are going to end up in defeat unless God opens up our eyes and we truly do believe and know that God is there and he'll help us to win the victory. So who is this? Well, I think that it's a pre-Bethlehem, pre-incarnate manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Jesus, Joshua's namesake. That's who appeared to him. Now, this is the same person that appeared to Moses at the burning bush, the same voice that came out of that burning bush. This is the same person identified as an angel who wrestled with Jacob. This is the same person who is identified in the book of Daniel as the fourth man in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And this person was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how do I know that this is not an ordinary angel? Well, ordinary, if angels are ordinary, but how how do I know that he's just not a regular old angel? Well, look at verse number 14. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship. Well, Joshua would not have fallen and worshipped an angel. These gods, God's already said that the only one is to be worshipped is Jehovah God. You worship God alone. You don't worship anybody but God. Now, most of you are probably familiar with the book of Revelation when John had some things revealed to him by an angel. And what John did, he decided, well, I need to fall down and worship this angel. We find it in Revelation 22, verse 8. And I, John, saw these things and heard them. And when I'd heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel, which showed me these things. Then saith he unto me, see thou do it not. For I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren of the prophets and of them which keep the sayings of this book. Worship God. Now, in Joshua's case... If this is just an angel, if this is an ordinary man, then what he would have said to him was, get up, Joshua, get up off your face. You don't worship me, you worship God. But we notice here that this man says no such thing. He permitted Joshua to worship him. And then he said some very, very familiar words. Verse number 15, And the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, Loose thy shoe from off thy foot, For the place whereon thou standest is holy. And Joshua did so. Where have we heard that before? Where do we recognize this? Exactly right. This is the same thing that God said to Moses at the burning bush. Draw not nigh hither. Put off thy shoes from off thy foot. For the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Listen to this. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. 
And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Who was it that Joshua saw? Well, I think that he saw Jesus. And this had to be Jesus. This had to be the Son, because the Bible says that no one has ever seen the face of God. So this had to be the Son of God. And who is Jesus? Well, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the revelation of the Father. He's the manifestation of the Father. So Joshua recognized him as God. He fell on his feet to worship him. Now, Joshua was a great commander. Make no mistake, he was a great commander. But here he's standing in front of the great commander. And Joshua knew he must bow his knee before him because he recognized his authority. Now, here's your personal application for tonight. Have you fully surrendered to Jesus? You see, the only way for you to claim your victory is to admit that you're not the one in charge. God can use you. As I preached this morning, God uses us ordinary folks, but he's not going to use us until our hearts have been circumcised in faith, until we realize that it's the power of God who gives us the victory. God will use us, but we also have to recognize his authority. We are not the ones who are in charge here. So the question is, have you fully surrendered to Jesus? Next week, we'll talk more about this, and we're going to learn a little bit more about what it means to be fully surrendered to Jesus as we talk about those walls coming down. But right now, what I want to know is, are you fully surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ? And Zechariah, it says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith, who does it say here? The Lord of Host, the Lord Sabaoth. Joshua, you will win when you surrender to my power. Fear not, I am with thee, O be not dismayed, for I am thy God, I will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. If you're spiritually prepared, you will win your battles. You must be fully surrendered to Jesus. So, Every one of us here tonight, we must recognize the authority of the commander. Let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come to you tonight. Help us, Lord, that we would be spiritually prepared, that we understand that our faith must be placed in you. We must see the power of the blood, trust your blood to overcome all of our foes. And then, Lord, as we do this from day to day, we recognize your authority over us, and we submit to that authority. Help our people tonight, Lord, that we might claim our victory in the Christian life. Help our hearts to be prepared as they should be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.